Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Before we get started, don't forget to like and subscribe and check out our YouTube channel. If you like what you're seeing and you want to help support us, our featured athletes, coaches, and our guests, make sure to subscribe and share their stories. We are powered by Spirit Leaf Waterdown, located at 64 Hamilton Street North in Waterdown, Ontario. If you're looking for Canada's top cannabis stop, look no further than Alex and his crew at Spirit Leaf Waterdown. With their knowledgeable staff, you're going to find all the THC and CBD products of the highest quality there. Online curbside pickup is available, and don't forget to like our Instagram and their Instagram, and you'll save some money. The links will be in the podcast. We are also sponsored by Project XCard. Giving the gifts of jiu-jitsu is important. Project XCard has been helping the underprivileged youth in Toronto get connected to jiu-jitsu throughout the GTA and continue to do so even throughout the pandemic. If you know anybody who would benefit from the gift of jiu-jitsu, make sure that you contact us or Project XRD, and we'll help get them started with some amazing instructors. Thanks, everybody, and enjoy the show. started i need to ask i need to ask you uh, are you biting uh, arthur style there with the sweater the gi on top the <laughs> no because i'm not wearing socks, <laughs> You're not wearing socks. <laughs> i'm not wearing size 18 tube socks nice size 18 <laughs> yeah arthur yeah arthur's funny with his hoodie yeah he's does, cool does he wear does he wear socks too i've never seen the socks he wears socks yeah oh my goodness you might, even, is, you might even teach in mittens some days. <laughs> is, that, like is that a cardinal Sanders, sin? Like, like Bernie Sanders. What's that? <laughs> is that like a cardinal sin in like jujitsu? It's like training in socks. It's just not a good look. It's just, it's just not yeah, like, I, I, even if you want to stay warm, like it's, it's I, I, socks, I, man. I think <laughs> you're, you're allowed to get away with some stuff in cold climates, but socks on the mats are just, it's just frowned upon no matter where you are. Just draw the line. Draw the line at that. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, I don't really think you need much of an introduction, but Mr. Joel Gerson, can you please introduce yourself and tell everybody where you're teaching out of? Tell us all about yourself. Uh, I have two locations, uh, one in Vaughan at Dufferin and, and uh, Langstaff, and the other one in North York and Toronto at uh, Leslie and the 401. Very nice. So thank you so much for joining us today. I know we're got you Zoom class today. So like, how has things been going? Obviously, obviously, Zoom has been like the main thing that everybody's kind of been focusing on. How has that kind of like been able to be able to do it? Do you get so into it right like away? With, or? With, the, with the first lockdown, um, it kind of came as a relief, I think, because people were just kind of craving connection. And mm -hmm. for me, it was nice to get back into the creative aspect of teaching and seeing everybody. And then, um, you know, we did that for a while and then we got back to face-to-face -to -face classes and it was just interesting in the second lockdown, we, um, we had to go back to zoom, which I didn't pivot right away. Like I almost, I went kicking and screaming. Like I took a little break and I knew I was going to have to go to zoom, but I just, after seeing everybody face to face and being on the mats and having jumped through all the different hoops, to get everybody back into in-person training, to have to go back to a laptop 
just felt very, uh, it was a tough pivot. So I went kicking and screaming into the second one. And then what was interesting was kids were able to come back to Zooms, but adults just, adults were, they couldn't do it anymore. They had to stay in person. So I think like a lot of the adults have found um, sort of a quarantine partner to train with. And uh, they've at this point invested in mats for basements. And they have kind of like bunker jujitsu groups set up right now. Pretty much. It's like underground Skynet, like fighting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's basically, you know, I feel like everybody's part of uh, the resistance. (laughs) i think i think honestly though when it comes to like when it comes to like training on zoom and everything like you're limited with what you can do unfortunately especially if you don't have a partner to train with it's like what are you gonna practice technical stand-ups for an hour if you're an adult i mean it's it's great if you're a beginner but i think there's there's certain things that you gotta there's certain limitations i guess you could say with i found in my experience um it came down to how creative the instructor could be. Yeah. So, so really, you know, one aspect is there's not much you can do and don't bother. But what I found was in particular, especially you, you definitely need to have a dummy, but um, you, you can definitely work a lot of passing concepts, whether it's leg weave, uh, knee cuts, um, you know, there was all kinds of different things that a lot of my students were able to do. And what we found was that the students that had drilled on zoom, when we came back to in-person training, were able to actually improve their level. Because the other thing is when you're drilling with a a dummy, you don't have to take turns with anybody. You're getting Mm -hmm. twice as many reps in on top of the fact that you're not wasting time uh, switching from top to bottom. So people were actually get, were able to get really good. And obviously there's a ton of stuff from guard you can do. You were able to do all kinds of stuff between chokes and Kimuras and armbar drills. So it, I think it was a, a break for some people to um, also just reconnect with everybody. But at a certain point, I think, it's, you know, depending on the student, they definitely need a, a heartbeat in front of them to, to push them. Yeah, you, you oh, need yeah. you need one at least like just one body that's alive and not not a dummy. I mean, I've I've been using Aaron as a grappling dummy, like even before the pandemic. But now, like now, it's I I think it's it's you need you need people you need like with jujitsu it's a, it's very reactionary as well. So you have to kind of go by okay, like we're training um, a dummy's gonna get you can practice certain things on a dummy. But then it's at the end of the day, I think it's jiu-jitsu is one of those things like it's hard to do and socially distance at the same time. Like you need to practice with somebody. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the big thing with the jiu-jitsu is, is really the community as well, which Zoom classes are able to provide for people. But I think when it was a second lockdown at that point, everybody had kind of I think a lot of people had found someone that they can train with that they trusted. You kind of go through, you know, who at your academy you like is about your size and um you know, there's a lot of people still training around the city right now. I think people are aware of that. But like some, some people just can't take the risk. They have family members that are elderly that they live with and it's just too risky for them. But um, a lot of people have a partner. 
Yeah, I think that's true, right? You have to respect the individuals who can't take a risk because of certain issues at home or whatever, or their own personal views on a certain thing. But then you also have to kind of respect, okay, well, there's businesses that have to open up. There's people that need, whether it's a mental health aspect, a physical health aspect, there's just people need to start living some form of daily lifestyle again, rather than just staying at home. But isn't it so interesting how in the US, all these jujitsu academies are full? Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> it's like, it's crazy. It's just like, it's just another day. It's just like a- Tuesday. AOJ basically. posting pictures from their 6 a.m. class with 50 people, like just lined up across the mats. And you're like, wow. What's well, happening and, in Florida and California? And numbers in Florida going down, anyways. Well, what's crazy too is it's like, there's like, again, you think California, for example, they're supposed to be locked down, but all these places are still opening. So, like, obviously, like, it comes to the enforcement side is either not happening. Or like, we're just being more compliant. Like, I don't know, right? Like, it's just, it's really weird, especially when all these places are open and nobody's getting like, they're not getting shut down. Where right. I guess that's in like in greater Toronto, like you try to open up, they're going to shut you down right away if they know about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't, we don't have the same guns that they have. Yeah, guns, <laughs> guns, freedom, <laughs> guns, freedom, America. But yeah, like I've I've looked at like you know AOJ uses an example or like Legion where like like Keenan's gym where it's just like you go in, it's just like another day or there's 50 people training. They might have some curtains up, but other than that, it's just wasn't it wasn't it so interesting to watch Keenan uh, flip? <laughs> yes. Oh <laughs> yeah, like hundred percent. One of the most vocal people about being careful and not doing anything and then just kind of quietly opening up his classes just doing i like gordon Gordon ryan i'm pretty (laughs) sure gordon Gordon called him out on it but and i'm not there's no judgment in that at all it's just sort of interesting because i think all of us have changed uh perspective from one way to another in terms of how closely we're observing and how strictly we're, we're observing like people are kind of uh you know taking things with a grain of salt or deciding how much risk to take in different contexts. Like it's, it's a very personal thing. And I think it's, it's kind of a moving target for a lot of people. Yeah. I I think, I think what it comes down to is like the situation, like is different for everybody. So like, like who am I to judge you or anybody else for like doing what they need to do in order to, you know, stay sane or, or even just like continue training. Um, I want to ask you just on like the business side of things, because you have two gyms, you have two, two rev MMA gyms. Um, what is your, what is your take as a small business owner, just like business wise, like in Ontario federally, like, like what's your take on like what's happening and like, is there anything else you'd like to see done kind of like even government wise, or what would you like to see done like for your club? Well, I, I think it's, it's pretty clear that we've seen our government mishandled the pandemic at, at various levels, whether it's uh, vaccine distribution or um, balancing small versus large business operations. Um, there's definitely a lack of transparency in terms of decision-making and justifying decisions that statistically are proving to not be, um, to not have merit. And um, I think that people are tired of it, but you know, people have a lot of questions as to why large businesses have been able to open in ways that are deemed relatively unsafe. And small businesses, which statistically have proven to not be um, contributors to the increase in numbers as to why they've been been locked down. 
So I, I think there's a lot of questions that people have, myself included. I think Canada being ranked 40th in terms of vaccination per 100, um, uh, per 100 people is, is really a disgrace. We're behind third world countries in terms of uh, vaccine distributions. And whatever the reasons for that are, it doesn't matter. Like if you're a business owner and you fail at something, it doesn't matter the reason you take, you know, as any leader, you take responsibility for it and it falls squarely on your shoulders. And I think the leaders of our country have failed us for whatever the reason they have failed. And, um, you know, I don't think it really should come as a surprise to anybody. We left a snowboarding instructor in charge of the largest distribution of vaccines in the country's history. And I'm wondering, well, why aren't we getting vaccinated? Well, go figure. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like, if you, if you actually look at, like, the resumes on some of these individuals, you have to kind of scratch your head and go, like, really? This is what we're, what we're going with? But, yeah, no, I feel you 100%. And I, I think it's, like, small businesses are, like, there's a big article where it's, like, small businesses are the ones that are coming up with the plans on, like, reopening. Like, what should the safety measures be in certain stores and all that? And then they're coming up with great ideas, whether it's being sanitation you know, spacing of merchandise or spacing of individuals, but then the government's just not really contributing much. I'm like, oh yeah, that would work, but we don't like it. Well, you have businesses that invested tens of thousands of dollars to be able to pivot and reopen safely, whether it's restaurants with patios or martial arts academies with dummies or whatever it is. And to now have had them invest deeper and spend more money and then mm -hmm. still not be able to operate Get, there's just no logic behind any of it. Mm -hmm. No, hundred percent. Well, I think like um, the big thing I'd like to ask you though, is like kind of pivoting is like during obviously the pandemic, you've had the opportunity to kind of get your out yourself and get back into a competition, right. To kind of change your mindset more than anything. So like, how did, how did you go about like saying, okay, I'm going to go during the time of, of the pandemic, I'm going to go compete and I'm going to kind of change what I'm doing right now to kind of, focus on other things. So how did that come about? That's a very good question. And it was not an easy decision at all. Um, that was actually a really tough decision. And it's a perfect example of a time where your comfort level, or in my case, my comfort level with everything was kind of a sliding scale. Um, it was at a point where I literally had nothing to do. Like the businesses are closed. You can't, I'm not about to start a new business. Um, I, I did look at law schools, <laughs> like, like you have nothing else to do. You're like, Oh, let's, let's look at what the entrance requirements are for, um, law school in California. Like you're literally just kind of, well, what am I going to do now? We don't know what's going to happen. And, um, I needed something to focus on. And it was at a point where I, you know, I like to cook and I like to eat. And I knew that if, if I didn't sort of focus down on something, I'm going to be 800 pounds. And uh, sitting on my couch and, and, um, and, and very bored. And I think that the training for the competition was something that allowed me to take back control mm -hmm. in a way. Um, I'd never gone to Masters World before. That was actually only my fourth IBJJF tournament. Obviously, growing up before IBJJF was in Canada, there was jiu-jitsu tournaments, but it was never that specific rule set. So I'm still getting used to the IBJJF rule set. I'm still making, you know, I still little things that I have to learn and pick up. But uh, it was something that's, that 
obviously scared me. I had to cut to featherweight, which I'd never done before. I'd never been at that weight as an adult in my life. Even when I fought in Japan, I fought at 155. So I had to cut a lot, which was another, you know, another challenge that I wanted to like, I wanted to see if I could do it. Um, the timeline was good. I was able to select specific people to train with that I felt were safe um, or, um, you know, necessary risks at the time. <clears throat> and, um, you know, it, it was definitely a funny time to be doing all that stuff, but mm-hmm. it allowed me to just turn a negative into a positive. Yeah, no, for sure. hundred percent. And like, and like, how was the experience like going again, leaving the country, then going to another country? Like what was like the tournament? Like what was like the setting? Like yeah, the mood. So it was really interesting. I mean, there's a few things that were definitely that, you know, it's funny. There's an old book by um, Yamashita, who's a judo world champion. Um, and he talks about his competition experience. This is like, this is a really old book, but one of the things he, he starts to talk about when you, he talks to, when he's telling you about getting ready for competitions, he's like, when you prepare mentally, you can't assume that everything is going to go your way. You have to assume the refs are going to be against you. You have to assume that mats are going to be harder than what you're used to. Like you have to mentally prepare for all these things. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, one thing that's great with jujitsu competitions is, you know, when you're going to fight more or less, you have a specific time, you know, max yeah. certain time. And when I was competing, you know, 25 years ago, you never know when you're going to fight. You never knew when your next match was going to be. You just had to be ready two hours before and that was it. But the funny thing with, with worlds was um, they were ahead of schedule or they were basically the, the, the times that we had the matches were really rough estimates. So when I was time to warm up, the warm up area didn't have mats. And I think that's because of COVID. So it was yeah. actually, yeah, it was actually, <laughs> honestly, sorry. Like, I think that's silly because it's like, okay, you're going to a jiu-jitsu tournament. You're going to be trying to kill <laughs> another stranger on the mat, but yeah. you can't warm up because you're going to get COVID. I, I honestly, like it, it seems so weird to me, but I know that the IBGF is, it's a very well-run organization, all things considered. And they're very organized. Mm-hmm. Whenever I send emails and I get emails back, like, I can't, I can't reproach them about any of this stuff. And I got there and I was like, I'm looking, I'm like, where are the mats that I can warm up on? <laughs> and there wasn't, it was concrete. So that was like, that was like a funny thing that you couldn't really prepare for. There was the time you ended up fighting earlier than you thought. And there was no proper warm up area with mats mm-hmm. that you could get ready with, with a partner or whatnot. So those were some funny things about it. It was also interesting in, with just in, in Florida to see, I was impressed that people were actually wearing masks even outside. People were actually pretty careful in Orlando and that goes based on different parts of the city and different, different parts of Florida. Um, so that was also something that was interesting to see. But my mindset was to get in and get out. I wanted to fight, you know, get on the podium in terms of like, you know, get the, get the medal and then leave as soon as possible. And it was funny because afterwards when we were trying, when it was time to get the medals, we were waiting, um, we we're waiting for all the, all the medal winners. And the guy who took first was just not coming. Like, <laughs> Soko was just taking his time. Like, we don't know what he was doing. We're just literally waiting. And in my head, I'm like, this is when I'm going to get COVID waiting for Soka. <laughs> <laughs> 
he's, he's out making a sandwich. He's coming I, to collect his gold medal. His acai bowl and taking pictures with fans, I guess. But um, overall, the experience was, um, yeah, it's just, it's, for me, it's still getting used to competition. There's the different mindsets. Like I remember doing this a lot when I was young and you get to a point where I feel like the emotions are balanced. And um, I feel like with every competition, I'm getting more and more comfortable with all that aspect of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, this is one more step in that direction. So when you, when you kind of like go on it, like, okay, you said you, you've been training for like 25 years of competition before. So like, how did you even get started into whether it being jujitsu or MMA and judo? Like, how did this all start? Sorry, how did, how did which part start? Like, how did, how did you transition, I guess? Because what, what, what did you originally start with? Was it judo? So yeah. I started as a kid. Um, and my instructor started by teaching us judo the first couple of years. Then we transitioned into the adult class, and that was jiu-jitsu. Okay. And then when it came time, to, came time for competition, I focused, because that's all there was, was judo competitions. But we were doing both judo and jiu-jitsu. And then the UFC hit and we started pivoting more towards jujitsu for MMA and then jujitsu for jujitsu competitions. Cause they, you know, those competitions started, started popping up, but competition wise, the only option was judo, but the style of judo that we did was, you know, a Kozen style with a ton of groundwork, but we were still doing all the self-defense from jujitsu. Like, there was judo and jujitsu, but back in the day, a hundred years ago, um, even the judo that was taught was jujitsu. Like the differentiation wasn't really made, you know, it just wasn't in the style that we were doing it. It wasn't Brazilian jujitsu because my instructor wasn't Brazilian. So it wasn't that kind of Brazilian lineage, but we were doing, you know, uh, we were doing triangles and on bars before the Gracie's ever appeared on the cover of black belt magazine. Yeah. Well, me and Aaron wanted to ask you because like, there's a lot of talk about like, you know, American jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu, Japanese jujitsu, and you've had like a pretty unique upbringing with, you know, judo and jujitsu as well. Like what's your whole take on, you know, the, the Keenan side of like, uh, American jujitsu, he's American or like, should it, should there even be like nationalities like related to like jujitsu now? Or because I think it's all just jujitsu, honestly. The thing is, the thing is, even a hundred years ago, there was different schools of jujitsu, and the style of jujitsu that would, that gave birth to Brazilian jujitsu was the Fusen Ryu style. The point is that there was all these differentiating styles of jujitsu. So jujitsu is kind of like a big umbrella. Realistically, Aikido came from jujitsu, judo came from jujitsu. But what I think you're going to see down the road. With, and history is going to show um, with any specialization, you know, people focus on a specific area. So even with 10th plant, I think that people can really go down and drill down on um, a certain um, style within that program or within that style. And I don't think there's anything wrong with him differentiating his style that way. And I think it's good for his marketing. I applaud that. And I don't, to me, it doesn't, I don't think people should be taking offense offense from it you know he posted keenan posted the pictures from the articles from um you know american jiu-jitsu from from decades ago and it was yeah, funny people saw, saw that. that that like they had never seen it before but that that's all well documented stuff it's all very well documented stuff 
So I, you know, I don't really, I don't think it's necessary to debate the merits of it. If someone wants to branch off and distinguish their style that way and they can uh, justify it, I think it's fine. You know, even, even with respect to the Gracie's people, I think people take it, um, reproach, reproach the Gracie's for calling it Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, but Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was a very specific methodology, right? So I'm fine with all that stuff. Everybody can call it whatever they want. And yes, it's just Jiu-Jitsu at the end of the day, but if it helps is that uh, SEO optimization then all the power <laughs> and, and that's what i think it is it's just like it, like it is like it's like a genre of music right like music is music and then you have pop blah 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 right all these different things but again it is just jiu-jitsu so i think like he's marketing himself a certain way but i think it's just like people it's like you read something quick and you're like oh I'm fucking i'm fucking mad i don't know why this <laughs> is like well this is the time for that yeah. There's, a, there's, there's a lot of that going on right now. Just everybody's mad. fucking mad and they don't know why. <laughs> everybody's mad. Everybody on Facebook's going off on you can something. Like, you can. It's like Ariel Hawani just actually had a post uh, uh, a night ago uh, because he sort of addressed the Gina Carano, uh, a Carano yeah. fiasco, and he had his take on it. And really, the the, the more people that you reach, the more people you're going to piss off. And there's a theory that. For every thousand people that you reach, 10% you're going to piss off. So you can't, like, that's just a, a number that you have to accept. And you can't beat yourself up and um, be bothered by it. So there's going to be 100 people that are going to comment. And those are people that are going to be commenting. And you can see under, um, under uh, what do you call it? Under Ariel's post, people just attacking him and misunderstanding what he's saying or Daniel Bellelli posted something to his Facebook also. And people just, they interpreted the tone of what he meant and then had to comment underneath it. And he would say, and like, he even responded. He said, did you even read what I wrote? And people just kind of like <laughs> want to lash out and attack. And then other people will like, will post something. Like my, my friend, John Chamber posted a response under Ariel. And then people attacked him. How dare you support him? <laughs> just I, think, I think people just want to find something to be mad at uh, at the end of the day like there's going to be people listening to this podcast we're probably going to piss off more than 10 oh, percent of the people listening. I, this red hoodie has already pissed off 20 people <laughs> they're already triggered and people are like look at the yellow mat in the octagon what is wrong with this guy i listen I, I, at this point you know um you can't help it it's going to happen how do you how do you address the haters or like what do you what do you do personally? You're just stay hey, shrug it, move on. It's like it's like what do you even say, honestly? There's a, there's a great there's a great expression. A, a buddy of mine, he's actually a, one of my brown belts, taught me. He says, "Let it die on the vine." You just ignore yeah. it, and eventually, just you know, it dies. I think I think you have to be like that nowadays because if you try to address everything it's either you're going to put yourself in a deeper hole or like the point doesn't get across anyway. So it's like, why bother? Well, the thing with the internet is every, there's no accountability. So as soon mm -hmm. as you respond, it's like a bully that got a reaction. They're just happy that they got you to respond and they got you pissed off. So, I mean, there's times where, um, there's times where it's hard. It's definitely hard. Like, uh, you yeah. know, I remember once, uh, 
like, listen, you either, you either make highlight reels or you become somebody's highlight reel if you compete long enough. And, yeah. uh, I got caught, I got caught, uh, at worlds and the snippet of me getting caught, it was shared. Like, like it was everywhere. <laughs> and, and I remember some, I saw the, I saw a clip on like the IBGF shared a clip or somebody shared the clip and then some fat blue belt commented. <laughs> and it's like, what kind of black belt gets caught with that? And da, da, da. And I'm like, and it was, it took like every muscle. Yeah. And he did like, like my reaction to getting caught. You know, like yeah. I actually, when I got caught, I was like, I kind of laughed for, there's so many different reasons. Like I'll laugh when I do jujitsu. Just it's like, it's like well, you got, well, you got me. Like, what, what do you say? It's beautiful. Like it's, you have to appreciate it sometimes. Listen, sometimes you could be upset, but like I might do something that, um, that I like that impressed me, that I didn't think like my body just reacted and I did something and like, it's like, wow, that just really happened. But the flip side to that is, you know, you'll screw up and someone will catch you. And it's hilarious to me sometimes. Like it could be yeah. the kind of thing where you drilled the defense to this move a hundred times. Like you knew it was going to come and then you still get caught. I think that's hilarious. Yeah, Professor Shaw used to he used to say like if you can end a submission with a joke, that's jujitsu, right? Mm -hmm. Like you end it and the guy's laughing, like you've created a jujitsu. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a Japanese student uh, many years ago at the Samurai Club. He actually flew all the way to Japan. This is after um, I found Japan. He flew all the way from Japan to Toronto to learn jujitsu, which was the weirdest thing. But anyways, and he was amazing because you would smash him. And the worse you would smash him is the harder he would laugh. And then that would make me laugh. So <laughs> we'd just be on the mat just howling. And I always like that energy about it. It's just like a very nice training energy to have. Yeah. What, what's kind of like the, the vibe that you try to have like in your classes, like speaking to that, like, you know, you know, friend, you know, friendly, fun, entertain. I think that's, that's really the best way of, you know, I think getting, I, I, I keep, um, I like to keep a balance between discipline focused, but also loose. I, I was, I was brought up in a, in a very, um, in a much more formal environment it was more like a Japanese style. And I feel like that definitely does not have its place so much in a, in a BJJ environment. I feel like when you're dealing with adults, especially in Canada, it has to be balanced. Um, but I think it comes down to the, the instructor's personality. Some people are more serious and that's the energy of the room. And, you know, people vibe off of that based on the instructor's passion. Um, you know, I like to, I like to bring a sense of humor to the classes, but at the same time, you know, there's gotta be a certain amount of respect and a certain degree of formality or stuff that starts to go downhill. Mm -hmm. you know, people are coming and going, people are talking when the instructor's talking, like there's certain things that, you just have to draw the line at. And I think for every instructor, it's different, but there's certain things that I just, I can't, like that would bother me. Even if I'm visiting an academy, it bothers me. Um, just based on the way I was raised with everything. I think like anything, you have to have some form of a structure where it's basically there's, hey, this is the class. And then after the class, then you guys can, it's doing whatever you want. But it's like, like don't leave the, don't want to have five people leave the mats while the instructor's teaching like things like those examples. Right. Yeah, for sure. 
but yeah, but to answer your question, I just think, I think there's gotta be a balance between everything. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So um, I wanted to ask you, so it's like, cause you did have a brief stint moving into MMA. So how did you kind of like go from there and then kind of decide, okay, maybe this wasn't for me or like, how did you make these transitions? Transitioning out of MMA, you say, you're saying? Or like, yeah, because you transitioned out. So you were in and then out. So like, like how did your, you transitioned in? How did that go? And then when you transitioned, what made you decide to kind of get out of it? Um, getting kicked and punched repeatedly. I, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, usually, it usually it does it. There was, was a few factors um, for me in terms of getting out. I, I actually didn't really enjoy fighting MMA. I mean, I grew up really grappling and the striking was new and I was mm-hmm. thrown in obviously at a very high level, professional level right from the beginning. Um, and I know even, even, you know, the, you know, one of the fights I had, uh, against a tough striker, it was extremely uncomfortable and painful, but the training process was not organized for that. Like striking takes time to develop and there's a conditioning process to getting kicked and punched that needs to be done. I think gradually. But when you have a fight in a few months and you have to get used to that, there's only so much clinching and taking down will get you. You do have to know, you have to be well-rounded. And there's certain weight categories where I think you can get away with clinching and grappling for, you know, against different opponents for longer periods. But the lightweights and the welterweights are technical and they're well-rounded and they're learning fast. So you have to get in all that stuff. And I was a full-time university student, um, my coach was sort of like a part-time coach. Like he was really out of the country a lot of the time. There wasn't really an environment that was conducive to that kind of training. It was very disorganized. So strength and conditioning was not communicating with boxing. Boxing was not communicating with jujitsu. Nobody was really communicating and, you know, and, and um, discussing um, uh, recovery. So it, it really wasn't worth the money at that time. Especially when you consider how many people were actually on steroids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there's just so many factors. So for me, I knew my future really was teaching. Uh, my father was a university professor. My mother was a teacher. And I've been teaching almost as soon as I started training, like within two years of training. So I knew my future was in teaching and that's where I was going to focus. Another thing I wanted to ask is like kind of going back, like you've, you've had a lot of experience competing in, you know, judo, jujitsu, MMA. How would you compare your experiences before, like back, you know, like let's say 20 years ago when you're competing up until like world masters now, like what are some things that have kind of stayed the same for you? What are some things that you've made some changes to, or just like overall, like the experience, like how has that changed? That's a, that's a good question. Um, I think um, a big thing is the level of organization. Now to me, I'm still astounded when I can log into the IBJF website and see what time everybody's going to fight. They used to call this a Texas draw back in the day. But now it's just sort of like, the, it's a system with, it, that is everywhere. So you can see like at 10.23, not at 10.30, not at 10.00, at 10.23, you're fighting on Matt X or this guy's fighting here. And the pool is here and the pool is here and you're going to see, and, and it's like match number 23 and everything is so computerized and systematized. And back in the day, everything was done with paper and it was just way more disorganized. So you kind of had to be ready to go all the time. And um, really at any time, um, that is relevant for 
if only for weight cutting purposes. So when I had to compete and weight cutting now is a whole, is, that's a whole other topic, which I'll get into. But um, when I would cut for tournaments, when I was a teenager, it was a nightmare. Like I would get to the competition before the organizers would just to be able to step on the scale weigh in and then be able to go and eat. And I would literally be at the tournament for 12 hours between coaching and competing. I'd get there by 8 a.m. and you wouldn't be there. You'd be there. You'd be leaving at 8 p.m. It would be just such a long day. So disorganized. Mm. So that's a big that's a big thing is the timing and organization. And the other thing that um, I think is important to sort of get into is for, for this competition for World Masters, I actually hired a weight cutting coach. So it was a guy that was certified under the same team that does Conor McGregor's weights, weight cuts. And that was the first time I was this organized with a proper weight cut. I was fighting at lightweight for my previous tournaments. And I just felt that these guys were a bit just bigger, stronger structurally. It's, it's, you feel it at that level, that, that difference of 10 pounds and whatever it is. And um, I did a, a really nice, smart weight cut. And I got down to 149, which I'd never been ever before. So the fact that even weight cutting now is so much more scientific and organized and it, it really is simple math and simple science when you get down to it, but it makes a huge difference if you've done it right. Well, what were some of the things that uh, you picked up Jeffrey from that weight cut? Cause like, you know, you, you look like you got in like phenomenal shape. Like what were some of the things that you were working on in preparation? I was eating the same thing every day. There was no cheat meals. There was no cheat days. Um, we just couldn't risk it. So for a month or five weeks, I forget now how long it was. It was about five weeks. I was eating the same thing for breakfast every day, the same thing for lunch, the same mm -hmm. thing. So it was very, very structured. Everything was written down. Everything was measured. Weight scales. Uh, it was charted out, mapped out. And um, everything was very disciplined. Gotcha. Whereas, you before, you, uh... whereas before it was just like, okay, no carbs. Yeah. <laughs> Have fun in training. Uh, good luck at the 20 minute mark. Did they put you kind of like into a deficit as it, you kind of went lower into the, the weight scale or was a, uh, like there was, was a, a change? There was a drastic calorie deficit from the first day. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And now there's a now there's definitely a calorie surplus. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's definitely a calorie surplus with I think everybody who's been uh, everybody. in this lockdown right now. I've I've I put on some weight as well. I'm up I'm up to about 220. Aaron's up to about 280. <laughs> Is that why you guys have the beards? Yeah, I was trying to mask our fat. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. I thought, okay, so it's not just to keep you guys warm. <laughs> um, so, like, especially as, like, an older athlete, how hey, did you kind of, like... Easy, whoa, easy, whoa, whoa, easy. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Hey, I'm gonna, I'll okay, admit I need a sip. I need a stay on. Age, ageism. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, okay, let's start that like, sentence again. Uh, you just okay. went, for the, you went as, for the jugular there, Aaron. <laughs> no, seriously. Especially like, how did you kind of change your training methodology now? Yeah. As kind of like you've trained before a certain way, but now you've kind of trained your methodology a little bit differently, whether adding more scientific, adding recovery, adding a different nutrition program. Like, how did you kind of structure your training a little bit different? What, one, thing that, um, one thing that's important with that um, is the rest periods. When you're younger, it's, it's so much just um, pedal to the metal. 
And I know one thing a thousand percent when I was competing um, in MMA, there, there wasn't enough recovery, whether from injuries or just recovery from training. It just wasn't there. And um, a big thing for me at this level was knowing when to step off the gas. So, you know, a few days in a row hard and then break, for example. And then, uh, you know, further to that is leading up to the competition, knowing once you've done the work that, you know, that training session, like knowing when to, to stop the hard work is important. Mm -hmm. Knowing that this extra workout that you're going to do, you know, whatever day it was in ahead of, of the competition it, is not going to make you better. In fact, is the risk reward ratio is offset in favor of taking it easy. There was one training session that I had where um, I was rolling with um, uh, with someone that uh, he and I are very used to each other, and um, it was it was my last hard training session, but he was rolling with me um, in a way that was sort of like too competitive to a point where when you're arguing for position, he wasn't going to give it up. And I knew that there was nothing, there was no reason for me to fight for that position. Like, in fact, uh, there's, a, there's a good chance I'm going to twist something or it, it was just, there was no give and it wasn't worth it at that for that training. Like it was too close to the competition. It was, it was the risk reward of like, I'm going to force this position. No, or he had done, he had yeah. done a move. He had done a move that I knew nobody was going to try and was just too risky for this training session. But it was a move okay. that he did that it just, you're just going to, you could blow your knee out. But it's a move that's okay. good for him. It's just, it's his move. And I had to tell him, I'm like, no, no, I need you to mimic this guy. That's what I need you for. I need you to be playing this specific game. That's what you're here for. And uh, so there's different things where you just, you know, if you were younger, your ego might not have allowed you to do that. But in this case, it's just, not not worth it you have to be you have to be smarter like do you um take stock into like looking at the competition kind of like who your competition is and then kind of what whether it's watching footage and then kind of seeing what they do what their tendencies are or just kind of going in yeah that's that's another good question uh, I, you know what's funny is people are really split on this um you know when you when you ask some world champions like some legends they'll never look at the bracket so a perfect example is Marcelo Garcia. He'll never look at his bracket. He's like, oh, I got to face that guy now. And then he'll go and fight, you know, um, this other legend or whatever. But then if you look at some of the Mendez brothers, not some of the men, if you look at the Mendez brothers, they specifically talk about analyzing their opponent's footage before the fight. And me personally, I am a studier. I like to analyze. I find that um, at this point for me, and this may change. I know for some people, some people were a certain way and then they've changed their approach with this. But for me personally, I like to study footage because I still feel like um, there's certain holes that I like to plug. And I feel like you can, you can prepare for certain opponents. I, I, I sort of make it, like, it's kind of like preparing for an exam in university. When the professor mm -hmm. tells you this is what's going to be on the final exam, you can prep for that. And I feel like there's certain guys that play a certain game. And if you don't have someone in your academy that plays that game, you could, you could, you could say, well, it doesn't matter because I'm going to impose my game. And that is a, that is a valid 
strategy and, and that's, a, that's a good strategy to go by. I also like to prepare for fight gone bad. I like to, because what happens is if I can prepare for the worst case scenario, then mentally it, it makes me a little bit more relaxed. I had studied specifically um, one opponent's game inside and out. Like I had watched all his matches and also like, listen, this is only my fourth IBJF tournament. So I'm still learning, you know, what, what, what's like, and every weight division has specific styles. So what guys are doing at, at light featherweight when they're 21 years old is not what guys are doing at masters four at 165 pounds. It just, you know, it just isn't. So you still have to get used to what the guys your age and your weight are doing game wise mm -hmm. and prepare for that. Um, you know, so anyways, I had prepared really, really well for, for one guy in particular to a point where I, I was saying to myself, I really don't understand. Like, I'm so ready for this guy. Just kind of like mm -hmm. to use the university example. Like the professor said, this is what's going to be on the exam. And you have, uh, you have the essay actually in your head. You're ready to regurgitate it for the final. Mm -hmm. And in the match, when I, when I fought him, he actually um, came with something that was not in any previous fight, like a dozen different fights. He had never even touched this, this guard. And it was funny because it wasn't something that, um, that, uh, that, you know, it did throw, it did throw me off a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you could say, well, you know, why didn't you play your game? Well, I did to a certain degree, but you know, a fight, a fight is everything goes, right? Everything can happen. Yeah. Anything can you happen. Can't prepare, you can't prepare, you can't prepare for that. Right. So yeah. it's just, you, he changed the game plan based on kind of what you had studied. Yeah. 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 It's just, uh, there's an unpredictability uh, th that is still there. I feel. Yeah. But, but like anything, like you said, like you're still relatively new to it where it's like the more competition feels, the more matches you get, studying that same way this next time it's going to fall in your favor i think it's just again the repetition sure. listen i remember when i was competing before um uh i i think like i would i i got to a point where i would watch less mm -hmm. and you just you just kind of go and and it's kind of like uh you go to to like no mind where you're just um you're just more free with everything but i'm not at that point yet I still like to, I still like to study video and, and it helps. It actually helps me focus sometimes my training in terms of plugging my own holes in my own game. Mm -hmm. And do you feel you're going to go back more and like compete more moving into the future or is it just kind of like, yeah, come definitely. as I go. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I looked at, I looked at the problem in this year is such a write-off. Like, you know, is it worth going to the Orlando open and then having to quarantine for two weeks when you come back? or, um, you know, or the Dallas open or it's just, so I think we're still a little bit of ways away before, for example, I'm comfortable jumping into a competition. And unfortunately with the restrictions, it's really difficult to, you know, compete as much as you would like. Ideally, you kind of have to just pick and choose like world masters or just pick the big tournaments well, and go to them. Well, that's the other thing is that with, with this training, with the training, right now with uh with everything going on like there still is a risk so is it is it really worth this again ri risk reward ratio is yeah, it reward. is it worth risking uh getting sick for you know south carolina the south carolina open I, I, that, that's a personal decision but not in my case 
Yeah. Like you, 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 there's definitely like a risk, a uh, risk reward of there's, there's a trade off with that. Um, I think going back to like rev um, rev MMA and starting up, you've two gyms. How did that kind of origin of all that happen? Like, did you just wake up one day and you're like, I want to start, I want to open a gym and I'm going to teach. Like, how did that process begin? So, um, I was always, I always had in my head, um, the idea of, of having my own gym. So sorry, it's freezing in here. Um, originally, I know I, I'd been teaching for so long and I think it just goes to like next level. Like you start, um, assisting with the class, then you get your own class, then maybe you run a program, but, I, I had always um, enjoyed marketing and branding and it got to a point where I wanted to have a space that I created myself. I, it, you know, it, it's almost like um, I would spend so much time being sort of under someone, you know, as far as like my original instructor was concerned. And I think it was time for me to, um, to just go out and do my own thing. So, uh, you know, when I first opened, it was, like Rev was the first quote unquote MMA gym. It was jiu-jitsu academies. It was kickboxing academies, but nobody had really opened up an MMA academy. So when I first opened, you know, things were, were very busy. And then eventually it was just time to expand and open a second location. Mm-hmm. It just made sense, but it was one step at a time, you know, in terms of business, it's like anything you uh, you'll never have all the answers. And you have to accept that and you have to learn as you go and make decisions on the fly. Nice. What, uh, what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to kind of follow in your footsteps and, you know, open up a gym, a facility, uh, a jujitsu school, judo school, whatever, whatever the case may be. I think you have to be really honest with yourself in terms of what your strengths and your weaknesses are. I think it's very rare for anybody to be strong in all areas, whether it's finance, marketing, um, uh, managing of people, uh, the teaching side. Most people have a, a skill set that has only a few of those things. And I think that you need to, like anything, just like a fighter, analyze your strengths and weaknesses. So if you're weak in those areas, in those specific areas, whatever they are, you need to plug that hole one way or another. If you're weak in sales and marketing, you need to find a way to cover your butt, so to speak, and get resources that can help you with that. If you're weak in the business administration side, you have to either mentor under someone that can help you with it or hire someone or have uh, someone in your life that is strong in that department. You can't, you know, you, when you're a business owner, unfortunately, you do have to rely on people. I like to not have to rely on people. I like to do things myself, but you can only go so far that way. When you want to grow, you do have to depend on people, rely on people. And you have to make sure that you manage those relationships and uh, keep those good people around you so they can grow with you. Um, And then maybe, maybe you can learn what they know. You won't necessarily be the expert at it, but you're going to have to be well-rounded. It's like a supply chain. You kind of Mm -hmm. go in a supply chain or like a fighter. If you're, if you're going into an MMA fight and your boxing is weak, you're going to have to focus on your boxing. You have to plug those holes and, and have a, uh, an honest evaluation of yourself. I think that's sound advice. That's excellent. So 
looking at big picture, obviously with you know normal world, I guess, like what would you kind of like say the future is for like Rev MMA and yourself? Well, I definitely want to keep competing. Um, I have students that um, I just want to bring the level up, you know, within within the group. And um, I'm looking forward to basically the next round of promotions. For me, it's like uh, when I see that my students are growing and the student base is growing, it puts some wind in my sails. So I like it when the club is busy and we're back to normal and there's a buzz and a vibe. And uh, for me, it's about building community. I like to just continue to build the community within, within the clubs. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. I love it. I think it's going to be exciting. I think you're, you're in a perfect opportunity where you're going to have that boom. Eventually it's just time, unfortunately, and I, people are getting impatient and it's like, but when it's, when it's there, it's going to be there. I think you're right. What's interesting is in this past summer, usually the summer is the slowest time for uh, our industry in terms of, um, in terms of like registration and interest and all this kind of stuff, but all bets are off now. So last summer, uh, it was actually much busier than it normally would be. People, Mm -hmm. they needed to get out of the house. They wanted to register. They wanted private lessons, all this kind of stuff. And I think by the time we reopen again, it's the same kind of thing. People are going to be looking to to start up again and, and, and train if they hadn't in the past. Absolutely. I think people, people need an outlet right now, I think more than ever. And I think jiu-jitsu is a fantastic outlet to put some positive energy into. hundred percent. It's hard to not agree with that. So uh, there's one question. There's one, there's a couple of questions that we always like to ask our guests. Um, this is one that we started like back in like one of our first podcasts with a gentleman who shall remain nameless, but he thinks a Barambolo will work in a street fight. Well, now, seen, you have a lot of, you have a lot of experience in, you know, judo and jujitsu and you've been around the game a long time. Do you think a Barambolo will work in a street fight? Uh, I do not think a Barambolo. <laughs> let's put it this way. Of all the things to choose to do in a street fight, it is at the bottom of the list of things to try. <laughs> in fact, in crying, fact, the of that, running are all better <laughs> options. If you look at the bottom of that list, there's an anvil holding that <laughs> list down. And if you can somehow push the anvil to the side and move it, Barambolo might be there. <laughs> it, let's just say it may not be the most efficient. It might work. <laughs> it might. Listen, it might work if, you know, but why roll the dice on, on, first of all, you don't even want to be on the bottom in a street fight. So I don't know why you'd want to even think of inverting. You can invert on broken glass, on concrete. It sounds like a good idea. Uh, let's, I'll, I'll wait for the tape to come out on World Star. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I'd be curious to see if it ever happens. I did see... I think it was on, it was just on some other video, but it was like when the, the DDS crew was like all over the place on like social media and then somebody heel hooked somebody in the street and literally broke the guy's leg off and he just yeah. walked away. But heel hooks work on the street. Yeah. I'm off. I'm a fan of heel hooking in the street. But Barimolo's not so much. Not so much. What's your other question, Mike? I'm scared uh, now. We should, what do you mean you're scared now? <laughs> I don't know. Or we're talking about cities. So we're talking about like, oh. 
if you had to sacrifice one city, why is it Brampton to uh, COVID? Have, how, is, is, does Brampton still exist or have we lost it to COVID? <laughs> Here lies Brampton. Rest in peace. <laughs> Listen, you, guys might, you guys might be ostracizing a fan base in Brampton that you didn't know about. We have a, well, it's part of that 10% that we usually, that's our quota of people that we try to piss off. And they will find you. <laughs> it's okay. I'm from Brampton. Uh, so it, it's okay. I can make, I can make fun of Brampton. Aaron, Aaron can't. He's from, uh, okay. he's from the mean streets of Mississauga. No, Etobicoke. <laughs> mean streets of Etobicoke. The mean peaceful streets of Etobicoke. The mean yeah, peaceful exactly. streets. I just live in Mississauga now, so it's okay. Well, Joel, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today. I thank you for taking the time to meet with us. I know it's getting colder in that club right now, so I don't want to keep you any longer. I have, I have, um, a, I have a weight program that I'm going to have to get through now. Oh, so perfect. So is there anybody you want to thank or any sponsors you want to reach out to before we close her off? Mm, not off the top of my head. <laughs> not off the top. I did this myself. Fuck everybody. <laughs> I want to take this opportunity to apologize to absolutely nobody. I did it all myself. <laughs> I don't know if I did it all myself, but uh, but uh, the people that, that, that helped me know who they are. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Joel. I really do appreciate it. And we wish thank you all the best. And we hope to come see you in the club when everything opens back up. Stay warm, boys. Easy on the pasta. <laughs> well, I'm trying to I'm trying to go up to ultra heavy. I need it. Meet you there. I'll meet you there. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Take care. Thanks. No problem. Twenty years, boss. Appreciate it.